Hi, and welcome to episode 51 in the Canny Conversations podcast series, powered by the Pathway Group. My name's Mark Wakeley, one of the team who bring you these podcasts that we hope inform and inspire you, giving you an insight into the world of the Pathway Group. If you're new to the podcast, let me tell you there are already 50 episodes out there, and you can listen to all the past episodes by searching for Canny Conversations on your preferred podcast platform, or go to 1386audio.com forward slash have a listen. The main person behind the Pathway Group is Safraz Ali. Saf set himself up as a social entrepreneur over 22 years ago. Being raised in Birmingham's Alum Rock, his early life and experience gave him an insight into the life and needs of an inner city community, which is at the core of his passion for improving the lives of people through education, training, and apprenticeships. In this episode, we step away from our normal format with a session recently recorded at the National Liberal Club in London in front of a live audience. Here, Saf speaks to journalist Adrian Kibler about the apprenticeships and skills landscape. He explores the impact of underrepresentation of black and Asian minorities within the apprenticeships route and how to address this in order to increase employment, along with Pathway Group's role in driving better engagement with the community. He also outlines the arguments for government to go further with both policy and funding. So let's hear from Saf and Adrian. Let's start off, Saf, by just talking about where you are, what you're doing now, and um, you've, got, you've got businesses that are involved in employability and skills, and also um, domiciliary care, foster care, all caring uh, businesses, all businesses that help to change lives. So just tell us a little bit about what you're doing now, and then we'll explore some of the, some of the issues. Firstly, can I just say thank you so much for the for the welcome, uh, Elizabeth. Fantastic! Thank you so much for the invitation, and really appreciate the opportunity of coming here to the National Liberal Club. It's a fantastic, fantastic environment. It, it brings mixed memories. There's a part of me which is imposter syndrome to say I shouldn't be in this place. And many, many years ago, probably we weren't allowed in these sort of places. And uh, and uh, it, it it is uh, a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to to meet here and 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 speak to friends. Um, you know, there's a number of you that I've met before, and a few of you that I've, I will hopefully get to get to know better. And I appreciate the the opportunity, and for you for yourselves to come and talk. And because it is an intimate environment, I, I hope we can open it up and have a conversation as such as well, uh, possibly later on. As Elizabeth said, I, I run a, a, a number of businesses, but they're predominantly in the public sector. We're a private organisation, but our work is to supply services to the public sector. And what we do is we we work with 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 those uh, sectors to actually deliver services. The government predominantly has moved away from delivery to commissioning. So what you find from local government, national government, is that more and more services now are commissioned. So the commissioner of services, as opposed to delivery of services, and those delivery partners, whether they're private or quasi private or or third sector, are predominantly delivering services. And what I will say is that, firstly, um, you know, people have got this impression, particularly in terms of what's happened in the last few years, that the government is an easy 
supply to uh, supply services to because they've got a lot of money and you know they're they're very uh, easy in terms of naive in some elements in terms of working with the private sectors and the private sector is is washed with money because government's just giving money away that is a, a, i would say it's not the truth uh, it's, it's 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 obviously a bit of a, a black swan moment that's happened in terms of the ppe purchasing and so forth the government and any public procurement process is very tough is very diligent and there's a lot of risk involved to the private sector and what you're finding is there's a transferable of risk and the government is predominantly looking for more for less and that's what we're, what I've been involved with for 20 years uh, delivering skills employability delivering health and social care and and our new venture is foster care foster care services which I can obviously expand about and particularly in terms of the change that's happened in the last 20 22 years or so that I, that I've been involved in these these areas. We talked about um, your business staff pathway group being in employability um uh, and skills development. Just give us your feel about the landscape uh, as it is at the moment in terms of employability and skills what the government is doing what it perhaps isn't doing and what it should be doing. In terms of employability that's predominantly in the realm of department for work and pension so dwp dwp is the the the, the head funding body for all things employability skills comes under department for education so effectively what you're dealing with is two different departments at the top level government so you've got department for education and you've got department for work and pensions for work and pensions they're all about getting people into jobs skills is now predominantly about upskilling and reskilling people which leads to people into jobs and sustainable jobs because we're now living in a world which is you know skills do change they do evolve and it is about getting people into what employers want where the jobs are where they where they, so there is an overlap but they are two different departments with different priorities and and some elements of of partnership working but they do run separately with different uh, you know heads of heads of state so in terms of skills what you have is education skills funding agency who is the national government body but then what you have also now is devolution that's taking place so in each area uh, in in certain areas now you have combined authorities and these combined authorities are responsible for their own funding for skills so you've got GLA Greater London Authority in our area Westminster Combined Authority Manchester West Yorkshire all of these areas have got devolved powers to run their skills because they're the best people at at that sort of ground level to make those decisions skills covers things like apprenticeships uh, traineeships adult education budget uh, learn loans so basically people who can take a loan out to actually develop their skills as well so these are predominantly what's funded in that arena you've also got obviously higher education you've got the colleges and so forth and the dwp mainly works through the job centers uh, that's what they work through the job centers but they also work with the people who are running contracts for dwp so the current main contract is a program called restart which which is after some intervention from the job center so if somebody gets impl- unemployed the job center starts off with their interventions help, helps that individual to get into employment after a certain period usually 9 months they regard that person as long term unemployed that person then is referred to uh, a private provider in most cases who has a contract to get the, those individuals into employment so those are the two areas that we're currently involved with however as i said the 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 whole landscape has changed you know esfa education skills funding agency prior to that was 
uh, Learning and Skills Council. Prior to that was the FEFE funding scheme, uh, Further Education Funding Council. And each government's priority in each term, they have different priorities. Currently, the priorities are apprenticeships. So everybody is talking about apprenticeships currently. Uh, it's traineeships. It's young, getting young people into employment. There's a lot of work in terms of uh, helping people with redundancy programs, particularly in terms of reskilling. So there's a, there's a there's a focus of getting over 50s back into the into the job market because those are the individuals who have got experience uh, and maybe not necessarily the skills uh, for the employers now, but it's about getting them back into the job market and actually utilizing the workforce that we have got now. So that's the current focus at the moment for for government procurement. I mean, let's just talk a bit, stuff if we can, about um, the role that what you do played in what the government chooses to call levelling the rock. Um, but I want to talk particularly, if you would, about um, apprenticeships. Stuff is a great champion of apprenticeships. And one of the happy accidents of my life was I met Safras about six years ago. And, um, and, we, and we started working together on a project which SAF led and established to try and encourage more people from minority ethnic backgrounds to take up apprenticeships where they are underrepresented. That started as something called the Asian Apprenticeship Award, uh, which is an annual awards event. It then evolved into something called the Bain Apprenticeship Award and was relaunched with a highly successful event this year called the Multicultural Apprenticeship Awards. If you could, SAF, just give us a feel for the reason for that and uh, and why you think that minority communities are, are underrepresented in, in in apprenticeships and how you can see that changing or can you see that changing? So if we go back just seven years, in 2016, uh, end of 2015, 2016, at that time, the uh, business secretary, Sajid Javed, made a statement to say there's underrepresentation of black Asian minority ethnics, BME uh, community, particularly taking up apprenticeship programs. That was on the back of a government-funded report, uh, which basically said that we've got certain communities who are underrepresented and we as a we as a nation are losing out billions because of this underrepresentation because people are not fulfilled in terms of their their potential. And so there was a target that was given uh, to anybody in that particular sector to increase their numbers of of people, particularly for the BAME uh, community, by 20%. So there's a 20% target uh, over a five-year plan. Uh, In addition to that, there was also a target to achieve 3 million apprenticeships at that time. Uh, This is going back to 2016. Obviously, people change change posts, uh, ministers change, secretary of state change, all these people change, but that target was remained in terms of 3 million pounds, 3 million uh, people in terms of apprenticeships, and also the 20% figure. On the back of that, I had a sort of a, a eureka moment or, or a light bulb moment to say, let me have a look at the figures. You know, we were already in the apprenticeship sector. We had experience predominantly working in Birmingham. And what we felt was there was a little bit of a stigma, particularly with regard to understanding what our apprenticeships are. You know, and when you spoke, spoke to the community, spoke to people, people thought an apprenticeship is for somebody who... Uh, has failed in uh, ac- the academic world, and it's somebody who uh, who would take an apprenticeship because they have no other choice. Yeah, or it's a second choice, as opposed to maybe a career choice. So there's an element of misunderstanding what an apprenticeship is, and a lot of peer pressure and a lot of pressure from parents for young people not to take an apprenticeship up, uh, apprenticeship up, particularly in certain communities. 
so you know there's a stigma there there's a misunderstanding there so we we felt and when we looked at the numbers and said okay you know we've got a target which is a a blanket target of 20% 20% for all bma community but the bma community isn't one and there's different issues in each community and we've got a a, a rapper to identify all these communities but when you ask them and ask each one of those communities are you a bma community they would probably say no you know because they identify themselves something different whether that's british asian or british indian or british pakistani or whatever the case is they would identify themselves something different as opposed to a blanket bame black asian minority ethnic label so what we did was we had a look at the numbers because one thing that we have got in this country is we've got good data we've got the um, the government statistics that we have a department and they produce a lot of data and it needs to be interpreted and the data is there and it goes into a lot of detail and what we found was that with that data we were able to look at specifics in terms of the uptake so we were able to look at as an example uh, in Birmingham uh, you know where, where, I'm, where I'm from I was able to look at how many young people are from that particular community how many appreciations how many pakistanis and what we felt was that predominantly Birmingham is a young town there's a lot of young youngsters there and the, and the demo- demographics are that there's about 40% who are under the age of 30 in in Birmingham and what we also felt was that what we felt originally were ethnic minorities they're actually the majority so in in places like Birmingham and in certain areas they're the majority and the government now is using the term global majority as opposed to ethnic minority and they they they're moving away in terms of these these labels and and and, and these words and to a certain level even the word bme uh, there's a report last year a civil report which basically said it it's not helpful having this word bme so we've they moved away from labeling as uh, bme bme and what we felt was that the issue in terms of this underrepresentation was predominantly with british agents if we were able to utilize british agents more in terms of getting into apprenticeships then then we would actually help towards a government target we looked at people from different other backgrounds black uh, and what in terms of like, the black communities and what we felt was that they were correctly represented based on their population in that area and also their uptake and what we felt was uh, there was a massive underrepresentation particularly with the british asian community overrepresentation of people from uh, the white community taking up apprenticeships but in some cases underrepresentation in terms of going to university overrepresentation of black people going in into uh, apprenticeships but somewhat of underrepresentation going into university overrepresentation of asian community going into university and underrepresentation in terms of in terms of friendships but over representation in terms of unemployed so what you found was that a lot of the british asians were going into university and a lot of them were also unemployed but not many of them were actually taking the apprenticeship route or in work and we were trying to look at the balance and we thought no government department nobody's going to take this this challenge on because you're very you're sharp shooting you're targeting and so we felt the fact that we as a private organization could take on this challenge is a it is a risk because people will ask you know why are you particularly identify or targeting this particular community does that is that not racist in some element of it and we were allowed and we are encouraged because this is the, this is something that is 
particularly when you can identify these anomalies, we were able to, to do so. So we wrote to the government at that time to say this is something we were looking to do. They said as far as we're concerned, there's no issues with that, but we have no money for it. But as long as you're willing to fund this privately yourself, we'll do that. So we took on the Asian Apprenticeship Awards back in 2016 because we felt that the best people to promote apprenticeships are apprentices, apprentices themselves because they're role models. You know, rather than somebody who's, who's, you know, who comes from an academic background or somebody else or a marketing campaign, the best people are apprentices themselves. And that's why we try to create role models, try to find inspirational people all over the country who we can we can talk about their journey, we can talk about why they've taken an apprenticeship on, and we can try and, and promote them as role models nationally, and also as well as that in, in each of those companies to actually, for them to hopefully uh, open up uh, routes for others. And that was the start of the journey in, in 2016 with the Asian Apprenticeship Awards, which now has evolved to the BME, uh, BME, BME Apprenticeship Awards and now the Multicultural Apprenticeship Awards. I mean, just looking stuff at the, the, the landscape as, as it is now, I mean, what you're saying is that, you know, there, that there's been a perception problem with apprenticeships in that they've been seen as sort of second class, um, you know, as opposed to universities. Um, I want to ask you if you think that that landscape is now changing for, for a number of reasons. First of all, there's a lot of young people going to universities, to not very good universities, doing not very good courses, and coming out and um, you know with jobs that are not able to repay the, the 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 loan that they've taken out, which is not good for the people and it's not good for the for the country either. We've also got you know some of the great advantages with apprenticeships is that you earn as you learn. And do, do you think that the message is? Is starting to get across? Is, is, is there still a long way to go? Uh, and should the government be doing more? Or is it all about fine words and good intentions, but not enough actual support from the government to promote apprenticeships? How do you see it? So one of the, one of the issues that I have is that the word apprenticeship is misunderstood by many. Because firstly, it's so varied. You could have a level seven apprenticeship. You could have a level two apprenticeship. You could have somebody who's in work doing a degree, of, uh, effectively a degree level. You could have even sort of a master's level, a, a master's sort of le- like an MBA type apprenticeship program. And you could have a, a level two, which is equivalent to a GCC, level three equivalent to a sort of an A-level type equivalent. And what you find is that they're for people who are already in work and they're also for people who are who are looking to get into work and what we've got is we've got a catch-all statement and apprenticeship program and that's the first barrier in terms of people understanding that because one thing of marketing is that you know you need to be very clear in terms of what that program is so for some people it's a training contract you know when somebody you know goes into employment as a training contract for others it's a vocational qualification for others it's a program of study you know in in work and what we've done is we've batched them all under this title of a you know catch-all title of apprenticeship yes there's elements of benefits of that you know earning and, uh, uh, and learning but until you actually define exactly what that training program is you know people are going to be confused and and what we've got is we've got a, a word which is an apprenticeship which is fantastic it's got you know it's got meanings going back hundreds of years and it's currently not i believe fit for purpose in terms of the current landscape we, we're talking about technical vocational qualifications, we're talking about sometimes leadership and management qualifications, and we're talking about training contracts. And until you actually define exactly what that program is, 
I think, you know, people are going to be confused. Yes, people understand what apprenticeship is and nobody's going to say apprenticeship is a bad thing because everybody talks about, yeah, apprenticeship is fantastic. You know, I, I wish I heard about it. But what exactly are they talking about? Are they talking about their first job? Are they talking about early years in terms of getting into a job? Or are they talking about an apprenticeship program, you know, which is progressing into, you know, maybe a management position or a leadership position or further developing their career? And until you define exactly what that apprenticeship program is, you're going to have people who are going to be confused. Yes, it's, it's positive in terms of people embracing that. And yes, it's positive that organizations... Uh, have got people who've got the title, uh, young people or uh, early uh, careers in their job type and title. I think that's a fantastic, fantastic thing that organizations are doing that. And it's not just about graduate programs. They're realizing that it's it's much more than than graduate, graduate programs. And I think there is that, but I think there's there's an issue in terms of identifying exactly what the government priorities are and, and getting the marketing across so people understand exactly without actually having to explain what the program is. And then until we do that, you know, we've got this badge for all apprenticeship uh, program, which is, you know... I mean, we, let's, let's just relate that, so I think yeah. we can, to your own story. Yes. I know you... you you don't, you don't see yourself in, a, in any way as being a victim, for want of a better word. But the truth is, Saf's a very humble, modest man. But Saf came from a, a family that came into England uh, from Pakistan. Um, I, I think it'd be fair, Saf, we're not going to spend time talking about it, but, but, but school wasn't certainly not the happiest day of your life. Left school uh, without any real qualifications, but then you went back into education because you have a passion for learning. So, so just tell us, you know, the, the things in your life. I mean, for example, whilst, you know, you, you did a, a vocational qualification, a BTEC, which I think was a, was a bit of a light bulb moment for you, wasn't it? And that resulted in going on to university and then going into business. So just talk us through the importance of that second chance as far as you're concerned. I think it starts with the pain, the pain of seeing ahead that life isn't going to be comfortable, which is, you know, well, you know, I never wanted to be and become an entrepreneur or, or, or Richard Branson or anybody like that. I, I was looking at in terms of just progressing and, and getting a job. And I found the fact that when I failed my GCCs and we are transitioning from all levels to GCCs in that particular year, and I failed all my GCCs and I thought, you know, I'm not going to get any work or there is no career ahead of me. That pain really moved me into being a little bit more alert and that motivation. Yes, your parents always say to you, you need to go and learn and so forth, but nobody can change you unless you can, unless you want to change yourself. And at that moment, when that pain was there, the fact that I realised that life is looking a little bit bleak, it's going to be at the local biscuit factory uh, working on the track and, and so forth, and, and something I need to I need to do something about it is when I realised that this is what I need to do. And, and A-levels wasn't an option for me either. I had to reset my GCCs or go down the vocational route. And the vocational route was a BTEC qualification. So I did a BTEC first and I did a BTEC national. That allowed me then to go into university. And if it wasn't for that BTEC qualification, the vocational qualification, which then honed my skills in terms of uh, academia, that the thirst was there afterwards, but it took me quite a while. I was a late, very late starter. I learned English very late in my life as well, particularly living uh, in a household where both my parents you know, weren't uh, fluent in, in English. Uh, one of them, my, my mom was a housewife and my father was working in, in, the, in the local sort of titanium factory, a local plant. And what I found was that 
education was the only way for me to get a, a career that I could be proud of and was the only way that I could actually progress myself in my life. And this is the thing with, with all of us to a certain level. It's your first degree, which is really the social mobility angle in terms of moving, moving across. And that is less and less now. The value of that degree doesn't necessarily help you now to get that career or get onto that career ladder where, firstly, at that time, more or less, if you had the degree, you had a good chance of actually finding a job. And if you go back even 10 years or 15 years before that, more or less you were guaranteed a, a, a sort of a job with a, with, with a degree. So I had a fairly good chance that I could find myself a job with doing the degree and that's the route that I took. I thought, I need to knuckle down, get my head down, get back into this, into the swing of things, because the pain of not doing so was greater. And, and therefore, that motivation was there because I, I felt I, I needed to do this. And that was my calling to say, you know, I need to, I need to focus on this. And this is where, what, what I did. did the I, beat, I beat think, Saf, you're being a little bit disingenuous. Yeah, you worked hard and you, you got the qualification in there. But you also did an awful lot of other things, didn't you? I mean, tell us about the volunteering and how that helped you and... You know, the fact that you volunteered not just to do good, but to further develop your CV and career. Because it was the volunteering, wasn't it, that initially got you into moving from the corporate world to being an entrepreneur. I consider volunteering from a, from a win-win perspective, really. I mean, volunteering is often sold, you know, it's a way of people giving back. And that's how volunteering is currently marketed to people. You know, you've done well, we want you to give back. I looked at volunteering differently at, at my time. It was a case of I need to do something a little bit different because I'm a fairly one-dimensional person at the moment. I need to be in a position where I, I've got more strings to my bow and I've got more experience and therefore I've got a little bit of a competitive advantage to the next person. That's how I saw my first element of volunteering from a, from a pers- perspective of what can I gain from this? Yes, I'm going to you know, give back in a way, but I wanted to look at it as a win-win. And I think from that perspective, volunteering is currently, I think, missold across the spectrum. More people need to volunteer, but what we need to do is actually make it, make it in a position where the person who's volunteering also gains as well something. You know, gains, contacts, experience, and is an element where they're also winning from this, whether it's volunteering and becoming a governor at a, at a local school or a college or, or, a, or a charity sector or whatever, we need to encourage a lot more volunteering. And I took it as a, as I said, in terms of honing my skills, bettering myself and looking at a position where, you know, how does my CV look at the moment and it's, it's not looking great? How do I add more value to that CV? So I'm a bit more marketable to that employer. So that was my sort of initial views and what I found was uh, my mind changed in terms of actually it opened up I didn't know what I didn't know and I opened up more opportunities for myself and I actually learnt a lot and I felt that I was actually giving back but I'm also learning a lot and uh, this is where I, I became a sort of a serial volunteer um, and, and from that experience I started working with the local colleges because I, I didn't know anything about the, the public sector and because the local colleges were looking at doing more capacity building, wanted to work with community organisations, and they also want re- they also wanted representation. I, I took that opportunity, and from that opportunity came the possibility of us getting a franchise from what they were called franchises at the time, with a further education funding college, and really growing that skills business. But it wasn't anything planned. It was just an element of I want to look better 
uh, with prospective employers and I want to add more weight to my CV. But it led from there and I actually changed my mind on the whole uh, volunteering element and you know, and also the whole sector as well. Because I was originally from a banking and financial sector is where I really uh, focused and developed five, six years in that particular sector. Well, what started as volunteering with staff was, am I right, I'm right, staff, in that the, the, the volunteering started by going into mosques and, and other places, teaching people who'd come into this country as refugees English, is that correct? And, and that was the seed that eventually led to you know, a company pathway that is now uh, in Birmingham, in Manchester, in Leeds, in London. So, so it was from that volunteering that the, the seed was sown for, for pathway, correct? So if, if you go back to sort of 97, 98, 99, 2000, that period, the focus for, for the government at that time was English language training. Uh, particularly for uh, asylum seekers and refugees and the uh, asylum seekers coming in from European countries as well as from Afghanistan and Iraq uh, as well. And, and so there was a priority given in terms of uh, ESOL uh, provision and colleges uh, were tasked to uh, help with integration of the communities. Uh, focus was housing and focus was education. And the colleges themselves hadn't very little experience in this and they wanted people who would be able to go out and talk to the refugee organi- support organizations, the asylum seeker support organizations, the sort of community advice centers, the local centers, as well as uh, housing associations and encourage individuals to enroll themselves into a, f- a funded e- English language program and actually facilitate that and deal with people's barriers and issues and so forth. So this is the opportunity that I took as a way of going out and, and working on the sort of ground level, assisting people with their needs, assisting people with their issues, and hopefully signposting and helping individuals with whatever issues they had, whatever barriers they had, but also at the same time moving them on to courses and qualifications. And, and this is where it started off us working with the local colleges this is where the opportunity came, where we were encouraged by the local college to provide services to them. And we set up uh, an organization where they were originally part of, which was originally called uh, Community Education and Training Network, which then will be changed and evolved to the Pathway pathway Group. We've, we've, there's a lot of ground that we've covered, and, and, and I've known staff for six years, and there's an awful lot of ground that you know, we haven't had time to cover. Um, I just want to conclude by just asking you one thing. You don't look it, but it's your 50th birthday today. <laughs> half a century. And, and not half a century, not out. So why are you here tonight on a, on a late November evening um, in London? Uh, why are you here tonight? I think I'm here the same reason why everybody else is here. Because we're open-minded, we want to learn, we want to, uh, we want to engage. And we are in a position where you you want to develop and grow, and rather than possibly sitting at home watching EastEnders, you want to be in a position where you can you you know you never know. Everything starts with a conversation, and you know you're constantly learning, evolving, it's lifelong learning. And I want to remain open and learn from the good people that are here, and also hopefully share some thoughts and views with you, and and you know and support each other really. You're, you're a busy man, Safi. You've got employ more than a thousand people in places all over the country. You're helping change lives through skills. 
you, you're a very humble man, but you've got an enormously powerful story to tell. And um, wonderful that you're down here. Um, you know, perhaps we can do this at some point, but, but I just want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. If you want to understand how SAF and the business reached the point of developing this strategic overview, why not listen to the rest of this current series, which can be found on your usual podcast platforms under Canny Conversations, or go to 1386audio.com forward slash have a listen. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then please like, review, subscribe or follow and tell your friends and colleagues about us. If you'd like to know more, then go to cannyconversationspodcast.co.uk or go to SAF's website, safras.co.uk. Safras has also written a series of easy-to-follow business books, Canny Bites. These are available from cannybites.co.uk forward slash buy the book. We'll be back in the new year on Friday the 6th of January with more from SAF and the Canny Conversations podcast. Until then, have a good holiday. This is a 1386 audio production.